This is an Equity Bates Media podcast. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. I will say this about investing. Everything you do learn is cumulative. What I learned at 20 is useful. Welcome to another episode of Equity Mates, a podcast where we help you learn to invest in 45 minutes or less. We break down the world of investing from beginning to dividend so that you can hopefully make some returns. My name's Bryce, and as always, I'm joined by my equity buddy, Ren. How's it going, bro? I'm good, Bryce. How are you? Uh, Ren, very well. You sounded like you were a bit underwater there, blaming the technical uh, side of things there, but uh, let's move on. Very excited to chat stocks with you today, as always, and uh, to keep momentum with our expert investor series that we've been pumping out over the last few weeks, which has been uh, really, really insightful from our point of view. And I know a lot of our listeners are getting a lot out of it as well. Uh, Today, we're going to be joined by Peter Wilmshurst, who is Portfolio Manager at Templeton Global Growth Fund. We sat down with Peter to discuss all things value investing uh, and what it is like to be a a fund manager for a global managed fund. So uh, we really got a lot out of this one and really hoping that our listeners do as well. So uh, let's get stuck into it. So today we're joined with Peter Wilmshurst, uh, the Portfolio Manager at Templeton Global Growth Fund. Peter, thanks for joining us. You're welcome. So to start off our our interviews with expert investors, we like to play a bit of a game to get a sense of their investing style and some of their interests. So um, if you're happy to play, um, we'll, we'll get it started. Far away. So the game is called Overrated or Underrated. And we'll throw out a topic or a theme that we're seeing in the markets today. And we're interested to hear your thoughts about whether that is overrated or underrated. So I'll kick things off. Australian equities, overrated or underrated? Overrated in general. Uh, Ultimately, the world's a pretty big place. People living in Australia generate their incomes in Australia, have their deposits in a bank in Australia, have a house in Australia typically, uh, and then many of them have the b- dominant part of their equity portfolio in Australia as well, which seems a lot of eggs in one basket. When you look across the range of countries you can invest in in global equities, uh, it feels like uh, there's, a, there's more fish in the sea, let's say. I think the only two things you lose when you go away from Aussie equities are you obviously lose franking and maybe you lose some company knowledge but given the internet, given how global the world is, uh, Australia is a, a small part of it. So then following that, overrated or underrated US equities? So I'll, I'll go with overrated there as well. If you look at the MSCI All Country World Index, which is what most of us use as the standard measuring stick for our global equity portfolios, US equities now represent about 56% of that index you'll see plenty of so-called global equity portfolios that have 60, 70 or more percent invested in US equities, which seems to ignore a lot of the world, ignores Europe, underrates Asia, leaves emerging markets out a little bit. So clearly the US has been the place to be. It's been the best of the big equity markets over the last 10 years, but the valuations there are more stretched and people probably not as dominant as their Aussie equities, at least in a relative sense, but still probably too much focus there. 
So speaking of too much focus, overrated or underrated Bitcoin? Oh, is it even an investment? I don't know. It's, it's speculation. I'll go with, I'll go with overrated. Uh, I think blockchain is an interesting technology, which is the technology that sits behind Bitcoin. But as to Bitcoin itself, look, it feels very much like gambling to me. You're relying on scarcity. I think ultimately there will be legitimate blockchain-driven coin alternatives. We've seen the announcement from Facebook, etc. Bitcoin will be one of those it's been around a few years. Uh, yeah, I don't know. It feels like gambling. Overrated or underrated Australian property? Well, you've got to live somewhere. Um, yes, and uh, ultimately, yeah, I have an Aussie house, so uh, I, I'm invested in it. It's a significant part of my portfolio. But if you look at residential investment around the world, they've clearly benefited from, from very low interest rates. Prices in Australia are high, and I've heard all the arguments for why Australian property prices prices should be high, scarcity, coastal living, population growth, etc. But when you've got a global perspective of it, many of those same arguments would have been made about Spanish property. You probably wouldn't have made the same argument about Irish property in terms of sunny weather and beaches and that sort of stuff. But when you see some global markets that have had hot property classes, you do realise that property prices can go down. But it's a tax advantage asset class. It's clearly an asset class where banks are willing to lend pretty generously against it. So when times are good, that clearly helps. And I don't underestimate the extent to which people have made wealth out of it. But Aussie residential housing prices are high. So, Peter, two more. Uh, Overrated or underrated marijuana stocks? Even less view on this one, frankly, than I'd have on Bitcoin. Uh, Feels very speculative. (laughs) Feels very speculative. Look, I've been around markets long enough that companies have been appending .com to their name and getting share price multiples up significantly. I'm sure ultimately there'll be a, a market for it, but it feels very speculative in the way the stocks are reacting. Oh, that's interesting. So final one, Peter, before we jump into the, the main body of the interview, overrated or underrated ETFs? ETFs are an interesting one because ultimately they're, they're a way to access different investments. Clearly, the, the ease of investing into them has a lot of appeal. The low cost of many of them has appeal. I don't know whether I'd call them overrated or underrated because they're clearly a very significantly growing part of the market, but ultimately still starting from a fair, fairly small part. I think the the broad market ones, I think, have a real place in people's portfolios. The the two caveats I'd put around them would be in if you've got the narrow asset class ETFs, uh, there's some out there which are small gold stock miner ETFs. And I think you've got to be careful about those really narrow ones from a couple of perspectives. First, while the asset may be liquid, if you have everyone heading to the door at the same time, you could end up with some pretty strange price action. And the second one would be people just need to be careful the extent to which they're chasing fads just because you can I'm sure there's a marijuana ETF out there somewhere. Just because you can invest in something uh, doesn't mean you necessarily should. And what we've seen from investors globally is that they climb into the tech bubble at the wrong time. At the peak of the bubble, money flows in and ultimately people end up asset allocating to these asset classes at just the wrong time. So I I think you need to be really careful of jumping into some of these narrower areas too late. So, Peter, as we mentioned before, uh, you're a portfolio manager at Templeton Global Growth Fund and a global equities market commentator and long-term investor. So we want to talk to you about your career now and what you're doing at Templeton. But before we get into that, we're interested in your background and how we often like to start this is, can you tell us the story of your first investment? Yeah, it's going back away. It's probably easier for some of your listeners to remember their first investment, whereas uh, for mine, it was going back for, I'm guessing, about 30 years. A couple of interesting ones. Firstly, back in high school, I certainly got involved in share market games. I think they're still running nowadays. So sort of involved in a couple of those. But when I forked out my own hard-earned cash, there, there was a few different stocks that I held. I, I think the, the first one was actually a company 
company called the Adelaide Steamship Company, which is a little bit quirky for maybe your listeners that don't have the history. But at the time, late mid to late 80s, it was one of the aggressive stock market conglomerate M&A plays. Um, and I certainly came to it a bit late. Uh, I was drawn to some attractive valuation characteristics. The company was trading when I looked it up. Uh, this is very old school. <laughs> in the newspaper and looked what price to earnings ratio it had. It came up with a very low number. So without even being mindful of it, I think I certainly had value characteristics in my investments DNA back there. I wanted to buy a bargain. Unfortunately, what they didn't show you in those tables and what I didn't have the skill set at that point to work out was that they also had enough debt to sink the proverbial ship. And so that that wasn't a happy first outcome for me, but it certainly didn't put me off. Uh, I stayed very engaged in the share market through university. Ultimately, I yeah, found my way into a full-time role. So, Peter, you mentioned their valuation as something that you were looking at way back 30 years ago. So, is that still the investing philosophy or strategy that guides overall your decisions today? And if so, how did you, I guess, teach yourself and learn the process of value-based investing back in the day? Yeah, it certainly is. I think it is my innate philosophy, uh, but certainly working at Templeton. So John Templeton was one of the very much founding fathers of running mutual funds and one of the founding fathers of value investing. Sir John's first mutual fund started in 1954. It was called the Templeton Growth Fund, but nowadays we put people in either the value camp or the growth camp, but he certainly called it the growth fund with the view that he was going to grow your capital and his view to how you would do that would be to buy the most undervalued securities wherever they were in the world. So, yeah, it doesn't mean you buy the lowest price. It doesn't mean you look up the stocks in the newspaper and see which ones are on the lowest price to earnings ratio or the lowest price to book or whatever. You need to do much more work understanding the business, thinking about how those industries are going to develop, what's the future earnings, what's the future cash flow, which companies are going to grow because as much as we'll call ourselves value investors as much as we are, companies that can grow both have an easier time of things because they can recruit better managers, have opportunity to deploy cash flow into new areas and it's a key source of what you're hoping to buy when you buy equities. You're buying it, hopefully, to buy a business that will increase returns over time, generate more earnings and cash flow, et cetera. So value for for us, and I think for most good value investors, doesn't mean taking a really naive approach, looking at last year's earnings, last year's dividend yield. It's got to be a forward-looking thought about the company you're holding, et cetera. Just to follow up to that, and before we jump into to Templeton itself, there's a, we were discussing on the way into the, to the interview today that you know there's a, a bit of commentary coming out now that you know value investing is is dead and and it's not what it, it used to be, and primarily I guess because of this bull run that we've been in for what ten years now or so. What, what's your view on on where we are in terms of I guess the success of value investing and and how are you approaching the current market conditions? Yeah, you're right. It's certainly been a difficult 10 years. I I was at Templeton during the TMT bubble and that was certainly a difficult time. Uh, Back in the very late 90s, internet stocks were listing without any profits, without any cash flow. They They were almost listing with a good set of PowerPoint slides and they were able to raise hundreds of millions of dollars and get started. And stocks were rocketing up. The stocks that we owned were stodgy, old, old economy is what they were called. But that was a couple of years of internet rocket ship up and they're very much a a burst bubble, substantial outperformance for value investors, and really set up the the best part of six or seven years of solid value performance. Since the global financial crisis, which is more than a decade ago now, the, the, the US market bottomed a bit over 10 years ago. If you look at most measures of growth or value investing, it's really been the best part of most of those 10 years that growth investing has outperformed. I think there's really two key reasons why growth has done better than value through that period. The first one would be that 
this was a global financial crisis. It was the worst economic downturn we'd seen really since the Great Depression. So that has had a very scarring impact on investors, on risk-taking, on all that aspect of things. So it, it has led people to be risk-averse. And when people are risk-averse, they tend to want to buy the companies they know and love, the ones that are claimed to have great businesses, good business models, solid growth, all of those aspects. So I think all of that, and we're still dealing with the repercussions of it 10 years later, that's helped growth-style investing. The other one is that central banks around the world have taken interest rates to levels that we've never seen. We, we've got Japan, most of Europe with negative interest rates, Australia with 1%, US having jacked their interest rates all the way up to 2.5 now look like they'll bring them somewhat back down again. And to the extent that if you're investing in companies with higher growth, you're buying them with the view that their future cash flows are going to be stronger and the way discount rates work, that, that, that way off cash flow becomes worth more when interest rates are low. So having taken interest rates down to the lowest level we've seen in decades, centuries, depending on how you want to look at it, that's clearly benefited companies with the payoff in the distant future. So I think both of those have been probably the two key elements to why growth has outperformed, why value has underperformed. I think there's also an element of self-reinforcing philosophy. The, the new funds that are getting launched are quality funds, low volatility funds, growth funds, and they're sucking in some cash. So I think there is an element of self-reinforcing, which will continue until it stops. I think when you look at the, the opportunities we're, we're being offered to buy in stocks that no self-respecting growth manager would buy, I think they're setting up for some pretty attractive returns. But until it happens, no one cares. So, Peter, on that, if the returns between uh, sort of moving a cycle between growth and value, do you try and change your approach through the cycle or do you keep a consistent approach and wait for that cycle to turn and for your returns to turn with it? We keep a consistent value approach. What I'd say is that the type of stocks that are value stocks change through the cycle. So I think there's going to be different points in the cycle where we've got a tailwind or a headwind. And I think we've had literally basically the best part of a decade of headwinds now, whereas the period from March 2000 to 2003 was a massive tailwind behind us, really helping value. But when we got to the aftermath of that tech bubble crash, the stocks that we were finding as value stocks were stocks that would be clearly considered growth stocks today. So one of the sectors that I used to cover and again cover for Templeton is actually the global software industry. We put Microsoft into the portfolio 12, 13 years ago. At that point in time, Microsoft was considered to be a dying tech stock. It had Windows, it had a tie into PCs, all it had was Office, everyone was going to move off that. You could buy that stock on 10 times earnings then. So the different cycles will give value investors different opportunities. And there'll be times when we have possibility of buying really exciting growth stocks at what we consider really cheap valuations. They, they won't be as cheap as I might be able to buy a European bank today, but we'll still think that, that they're significantly undervalued. So we bought Samsung in 2001. We bought Accenture when they came to the market, etc. So as value investors, we have been overweight each and every sector at different points in time. So we get the opportunity just when you've had a really strong growth tech bull run we're not getting so much of those opportunities in the areas that the market's excited about today. We've got, we're going to have to wait for a bust. So Peter, I'm interested in digging a little deeper in Templeton's uh, investing style and philosophy. So your focus is value investing. Do you, uh, are you long only or do you also short companies that, are, uh, that may be overvalued? And similarly, are you, do you only look at equities or are you also looking for values across all investable assets? 
We run a range of different portfolios for different clients, but if you look at the Templeton Global Growth Fund, which is the listed investment company that, among other portfolios I manage, it is relatively vanilla in some of those aspects that you ask about. It's long only. We don't go short. It can hold some cash, but over the last period, we've still been, I'll call it pretty much fully invested. Uh, we've taken cash up a little bit, but not dramatically. We can con- consider other parts of the capital structure, but for us, they'd have to stack up well and provide us an attractive risk reward versus equities. So occasionally we've invested in convertible securities one way or another, where particularly if they're significantly discounted because the company's going through a difficult time, that might give you a, a really attractive risk reward because you've got the downside protection of being a debt holder, maybe not a senior one, but a debt holder in the company, but you still get some of that equity upside because you have a opportunity to convert into equity. So typically it's that type of opportunity that we'd consider. So you should think of us as predominantly equity investors with the ability to invest at the sides, but predominantly, yeah, we're, we're equities. Peter, if anyone listening is uh, enjoying what they're hearing and, and wants to back you in, the good news is that they can do so by buying TGG uh, on the ASX, and that is because it's a listed investment company. So can you explain what is a listed investment company in terms of, I guess, the, the structure and some of the, the key differences and advantages and perhaps disadvantages compared to an unlisted fund? Yeah, sure. So A listed investment company is pretty much exactly as it says on the tin. It's actually a company. So when people think of the unlisted funds they're holding or investing in, most of those are trusts, and that gives you a very different tax structure. So most of those unlisted funds would be direct pass-through. Most of them are also open-ended, which means that when someone decides they want to invest into that unlisted fund, they do a transfer, send a check, whatever it might be. New units are created. The portfolio manager gets some new funds to invest, puts them into whatever their best stock ideas are at that point. So the two distinctions between that structure and the listed investment company is the listed investment company is closed end. So if people go and buy TGG on the ASX, they're not creating any new shares. They are going to buy from another shareholder. So the key advantage for that, for me and for the investors in TGG, is that it's a stable source of capital. I don't have to worry that I'll see a a range of inflows when markets are getting frothy, when I maybe don't want to put a lot more money to work, or vice versa, when things getting depressed during the financial crisis, I'm not seeing outflows having to worry about raising cash ahead of that, having to liquidate stocks at prices I'm not happy about. So the patient, stable source of capital should give you a better chance to run the portfolio. You don't have to worry about that. If you want to hold cash, you do it for investment reasons, not because you are worried about inflows or outflows. The other aspect, because it's a company, it pays corporate tax and then passes out franked dividends to investors. So the advantage for that is, now it won't always work and going through the global financial crisis, this was certainly a problem, but you should be able to pay your investors a more stable source of income as opposed to an unlisted fund where if you've got income, be that from realized gains or from dividends, you have to pay it out in whatever fiscal year it is. So there's an ability to smooth to some extent the distributions in a listed investment company. The one probably disadvantage, but you can be a glass half full guy at the moment if you like, is that when you buy or sell shares in a listed investment company, that company trades on the ASX and therefore the price may be different to the price, to the value of the underlying assets. So most of the list investment companies, LICs, um, will release their NTA, their net tangible asset value on a weekly or monthly basis. So that'll tell you what, if the portfolio manager goes through and use them, uses market prices, if they value everything at market, what's the value of their portfolio today? And that may be quite different to what those shares are trading at in the market. And the glass half full aspect of it is at least partly because 
we had a federal election a while ago. There was certainly some view that Labor was likely to get in, and that may well lead to a change in the tax treatment that a number of the listed investment companies started trading at a discount to their net tangible asset value. So if you go and buy TGG or a number of other licks in the ASX at the moment, you're buying them for something like 85 cents compared to the dollar of portfolio value they have. Now, hope you should get extra returns just because you're getting a dollar of investments for 85 cents, but the hope would be also that over time that discount can shrink and you can uh, get closer to the underlying portfolio value, and that would obviously be an extra element of returns. So, Peter, I think it's important. Uh, one point you touched on there was the ability to invest your capital when the markets fall. And I think that's a really important point to stress and a real benefit of LICs. When you're looking at your portfolio now, the market's obviously very frothy. Are there any? Do you have any notable investments that you're happy to talk about or is there anything on your watch list that you're happy to talk to us about? I wouldn't make the comment quite so strongly about how frothy the market is. I, I think it's been very selective in terms of the market returns we've seen. And uh, I alluded to it earlier in just how strong the US market's been versus plenty of others. I actually have a chart that I use, which looks at the price return of global markets over the last 10 years. And everyone focuses on the S&P or the Dow or whichever other US benchmark they want to pick because it's the one that gets recited to them every morning when they wake up and turn on the radio or turn on the TV or whatever it might be. And the US market is up 200 plus percent over the last 10 years. If you look at Europe or Japan or emerging markets over the 10 years to June 2019, they are up between 39 and 47 percent in price terms in US dollars. So for us, the froth is in the US market. The froth is clearly in some parts of even the other markets. So clearly tech is one area where people have become enamored with some of those business models, how exciting they are, how good companies they are, how tech's going to eat the world, how software's going to eat the world. So I would say that's clearly an area of the market that's pretty frothy. Anything that's low volatility quality also is going to be more susceptible to that froth element. But there's plenty of areas of the market that are not getting a lot of love. So yes, there are certainly some areas that we're looking at reducing our exposure to, but there's also a big part of our portfolio, which we just think still compelling value, even though we've seen yeah some pretty good returns from markets over the last however many years. So we're certainly overweight Europe, but we've also got some significant exposure in China, in Korea, in Japan. Uh, we're overweight. Uh, when you look from a sector basis, so the industries, um, we're significantly overweight the banking sector. We're overweight in the energy sector. We're overweight in healthcare and the like. So we do think there's a, a number of opportunities out there. There's clearly some stocks we'd love to buy that we'd do if they pulled back significantly, but we still think we've taken cash up a bit in the portfolio. And clearly, there's some elements of the market which look a little bit concerning. There's some geopolitical issues that look a bit concerning. But if you look at the valuation of the stocks in our portfolio, look, I, I talked earlier about how naive a measure price to book is and how you don't want to look at it as your only measure. But the average price to book multiple of our portfolio is around 1.2 times. So you're literally paying for, for a dollar that the companies have invested in um, and it doesn't count the intangible parts of their business, doesn't count their R&D, doesn't count their brand value of their advertising, et cetera. The average of our portfolio, we're paying $1.20 for every dollar of book value that those companies have put in, which is no higher than it was 10 years ago. So, Peter, one thing you touched on there was investing in China. And I think that's probably one of the more common questions we get from listeners around, you know, China, China's growing. There's so much potential there. How do we invest in that market? Because at the same time, you, you see documentaries like the China hustle and you hear about certain frauds and you, you get very concerned about, um, about putting your money, you know, into Chinese companies in other markets or into the Chinese market. So how do you think about that? Both for Templeton and then for sort of retail listeners, uh, sorry, retail investors that may be listening? 
Yeah, it's a very valid point. There, there are clearly look. We've had corporate scandals in pretty much any company, any country you want to speak of. It was twenty years ago when Enron, WorldCom, various U.S. companies were defrauding their investors one way or another. We've seen similar issues in Europe. We've seen similar issues in parts of Asia. So governance is better in some markets, worse in some other markets. But yes, you do need to be mindful that Chinese companies, the Chinese system, the Chinese legal system, Chinese investor protections are not the same as they are in other markets. So that's absolutely a fair observation. There's clearly some parts of the Chinese market which are still very new. You've got new companies, sometimes rapid growth, but clearly governance questions, cash flow questions. That different regulatory environment means that the rules can change. So for us, it goes back to understanding the industry, understanding the companies, and paying an attractive price. And that's clearly where we're very mindful of. So we, we own stocks that do boring stuff like gas distribution, mobile telecoms, to be fair, one tech stock in China as well, but a range of different things, understandable companies where we think we know how the industries are developing. It's not like they're not going to be influenced by regulatory decisions, but you've got to make your call. But for us, it's a portion of a global portfolio. So 21% or thereabouts of TGG is invested in Asia, and that includes Japan, Korea, and China. Um, so overall, it's certainly a diversified portfolio. We'd love to now move into... I guess discussing some of the key ways in which you go about your investing process, Peter, without revealing your, your top trade secrets for success. <laughs> we recently did an episode, uh, a Basics 101, around uh, some key metrics that value investors often use. And I guess I'd like to start this with one question being, if you had to choose just one of either price to earnings, price to book, or enterprise value to EBITDA, what would you choose and why? You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Uh, I would very clearly choose price to earnings. Now, as I said, I wouldn't just look at last year's earnings. You need to be mindful. Anyone who's invested in Aussie equities for any period would be very mindful that, say, a mining stock, there's, there's an old adage in the Aussie market that you want to sell the mining stock when they're on a very low price to earnings ratio and buy it on a very, very high price to earnings ratio, which sounds counterintuitive for a value guy, but their earnings are cyclical. When they're on a very low price to earnings, it's probably because metals prices or oil prices or whatever it might be are at very high levels and there's only one way they're going to go and that's going to lead to lower earnings over time. So you need to be very mindful of the outlook for earnings, the medium or longer term uh, path for earnings. Don't look at last year's, be very thoughtful and long term. But ultimately, that's probably the best measure. Price to book, look, it's easy, it's shorthand, um, but some companies don't require a lot of book value. You think of a healthcare company who expense their R&D, um, who don't have a lot of manufacturing facilities. Book value is, it's not, it's not nebulous, but it's not the core of the value of that business. Uh, for financial, yes, absolutely. We look at price to book and uh, very focused on that number because they're effectively marking all their assets to market on a regular basis. But for most industrial companies, 
um, price to book is a somewhat flawed measure. Um, EV to EBITDA potentially sell, tells you something about the debt structure, which can sometimes be hidden within a price-to-earnings ratio. If you look at a price-to-earnings ratio, it may look attractive, but if a company's taken on a lot of debt, um, that may get somewhat hidden. The main downside for me in EV to EBITDA is that particularly depreciation, but also to some extent amortization, they're real costs. They don't go into companies' income statement as a, an expense because the accountants think they should be there without econo- any economic means. If you're Qantas, you are going to have to buy new planes and the cost of the planes historically and your fleet and your facilities are probably a pretty reasonable estimate of the ongoing cost. So if you look at a capital-intensive business like Qantas or a steel company or another one, um, and you say, well, I've got it on a low EV to EBITDA multiple, but most of that EBITDA is going to have to go back into the business to replenish the fleet, the steel plant, whatever it might be. That one's sometimes useful in comparing stocks within an industry. So maybe you compare Qantas to Singapore Airlines to Cathay to someone else, but comparing EV to EBITDA for a Qantas or a Woolies or Microsoft to someone else sheds very little light in my view. So as Bryce noted, we're very interested when we speak to expert investors about their process. I think we we can all learn a lot from uh, your, I guess what you do day to day and then also, you know, how you find stocks, how you manage your portfolio and stuff like that. So if we start at the beginning, do do you have a certain process for stock discovery or is it a little bit more, you know, ad hoc and uh, fortunate? It's pretty structured and certainly in the way that you operate as a professional funds management organization is going to be a little bit different to the way any individual can operate. Ultimately, we've got 35 investment professionals sitting in eight offices around the world, each responsible for a particular sector of the world, a country, etc. So you can certainly be a lot more structured than anyone could be from an individual perspective. And we've got access to tools whereby you can run screens to try to see what, again, using some of those valuation metrics are the potentially most interesting opportunities. So we'll certainly do that. But the crux for us is we've got a team of analysts who are following different companies globally who can identify what they think's the next exciting opportunity. As a value guy, we're clearly drawn to controversy, things that are making people angry, upset, whether that be countries going through difficult times, whether it be industries going through a downturn, whether it be companies that are controversial. Those things that get reported on the front page of the newspaper as bad are potentially interesting value opportunities for us. Now, it doesn't mean that you look through and wherever you see bad news, you go and buy. But if you see bad news, it's potentially or more likely going to be something that you have people selling without regard to what price they're getting. And that's where you can get some pretty exciting opportunities. So in the aftermath of the tech bubble, when the internet was no longer viewed as the revolutionary force, when yeah, Microsoft is just a PC business, that's when you get the exciting opportunities. So if I was doing it yeah, as a one-off, I'd be looking where things look bleak and trying to work out if you think that that negative outlook is a temporary thing or a long-term thing. And if you can see a path to the other side, I'd be having a pretty hard look and trying to find opportunities for companies that are going to emerge from the other side of the valley in the places where the outlook is darkest. Well, if you're looking for bad news, it seems like we're, we're seeing a lot of it in the news these days. So potentially a good time to be a value investor. If we follow that um, that journey through, so your team have come up with a number of investment options. As a team, you guys have decided what the best ones are, where the best opportunity is. When when you think about then managing that portfolio and you know deciding where you're going to be overweight, what you're going to sell, what what are the key considerations for you there? Do, how do you sort of manage your risk, or how do you diversify across industries and uh, and regions of the world? It is literally the be-all and end-all for us is about diversification. So we run global portfolios. 
while there's a couple of sectors we tend not to buy from an ethical perspective, we do pretty much hold every sector within the market at different times. We can invest in pretty much any country you can name. Obviously, some of them have practically defunct equity markets, but we could invest pretty much anywhere. So it's about getting a blend of different investment opportunities. So that may be a European bank one day, a US healthcare company, a Korean tech stock the next. You're trying to get a diverse set of sources of return. If you get 50 companies that are completely different, going to work for completely different reasons, that would be the ideal. Ultimately, it doesn't work out that way. It it tends to work out that there's some areas of the market that people don't like for whatever reason, be it European banks, be it oil stocks when the oil oil prices crashed down to $26 a barrel or thereabouts. So you do find that our portfolios end up being significantly overweight, having a bigger exposure to those areas where stuff's problematic, but you want to have a diversified portfolio. For TGG, um, we've actually reduced the number of securities that we hold in that portfolio. It's it's now headed to around 50 on average. For most of the life of TGG, it's been more like 100. So we have take, made that change over the last 12 months. So it is more concentrated now, but that still gives you exposure to pretty much every sector of the market. I don't actually know how many countries are in there, 16, 17, 18 countries in there, whatever it might be. Peter, one of the things on our to-do list is to become a portfolio manager. So <laughs> what we would love to know is uh, what what does uh, a day in the life of, of a portfolio manager actually look like, particularly with a, a value approach? Because I imagine you're not going in and making trades um, day in and day out every, every second of the day. So h- how do you generally structure your day? W- what does it look like? Yeah, I'd certainly say over the last 20 years, the amount of information out there has just exploded. So there is an element of drinking from the fire hose of information that you get. So you you get the four or 500 emails a day. You're going through the, the stocks that are sitting in your portfolio. And as you say, not because I'm going to trade them on every daily basis, but you've got to be mindful of where are they, what's the news that's developing in those. So given... My role is both PM and equity analyst. I've got to be looking over both the stocks I'm responsible for that are going into the portfolio as an analyst, searching through the industries I cover, trying to find new opportunities, as well as just keeping an eye on the portfolio, looking through the research that my teammates are putting out, trying to consider whether one of those new bargain opportunities that they're recommending in whatever it might be, it might be an auto stock, it might be a gas utility or whatever, trying to work through and seeing whether that makes sense. But I think it's pretty clear that nowadays managing the amount of information that is out there is uh, one of the key skills. And as someone who's really interested in whatever's going on in the world, in equity markets, you're never going to get through all the reading that you'd want to get through. So you need to have a way of sort of working out what's the critical ones, uh, put some stuff aside, hoping that you'll get back there or be able to come to it when it becomes more critical. But balancing off that information, yeah, download is a is a critical skill. And I certainly don't have the perfect answer on that one. I love that term, drinking from the fire hose of information. <laughs> I think that's great. So if we if we think about all that you're drinking at the moment, is there anything in particular in the market or in the world more generally that you don't think people are paying enough attention to? I don't know if it's that I'd say people aren't paying enough attention to some of the longer term issues. I think some of them are just really hard to know how to handicap. If you think, look, I think probably the biggest issues out there for the market right now Um, I'll throw a few out there. One is the on-again, off-again trade war between China and the US with potential little flare-ups happening elsewhere, whether you view Iran versus the US as a a trade war or something else, whether you view there's a little spat going on at the moment between Korea and Japan over semiconductor materials. But clearly China versus the US is the big one, how that's going to play out. Uh, There may be a shorter term solution probably for for US political reasons, for 
because no one really wants to blow up the system as it is. But if you think about the medium term to longer term, the emergence of China as a challenger to the US as the global leader is on. We can paper over it in the short term, but that is a real challenge for the next 5, 10, 20 years. What does that mean for global economies, equity markets? Is very difficult to know. I think the market is almost putting a little bit of, of it in the too hard basket at the moment. When you have a, a tweet about the trade talks going badly, the market will go down a little bit and then vice versa. But to ultimately know how this is going to develop over the next five or 10 years is, is critically important, but it's really hard to know. Clearly, the other one over the last few years has been the direction of interest rates. We've had pick a period. I guess it's about 37-odd years since interest rates hit their peak in the US, and we've had, in a broad, lower interest rate environment, we've had up cycles in rates, but we've had them keep going down for much longer than my investing career. But they're clearly getting to the level which, notwithstanding potentially being a little bit cut in the short term, they can't go a lot lower. So we need to think about Will interest rates be higher? They won't go as high as you would have thought five years ago, 10 years ago. But at some point in time, rates start to go higher again. And that's one where when you think about the state of company balance sheets, the stocks in the market that have really benefited from low interest rates, um, I think you need to be really cautious about that. So, Peter, we've reached the end of our questions. Thanks for taking the time. We really appreciate you spending some time and answering some questions. You're welcome. We always try and end, we always try and end the interview with the same three questions. So we'll we'll jump into that. Sure. The first one: Do you have any? Do you have any must-read books? I, I don't think I've got one must-read book. I, I think. I think Charlie Munger, or it might have been Warren Buffett even, who was sort of joined at the hip, so excuse me if I can't remember who, uh, made the comment at one stage that he didn't know that uh, any really good investor who didn't read really broadly and just spend a lot of time reading. So I, I think there's lots of great books to read. I, I, don't, I don't think – I have not found the one great investing book. I, I think it does come down to an element of – reading how different people do things. And ultimately, it is a little bit of doing. It is more art than science. So read different investment books by different growth investors, value investors. Read some books on corporate history, on strategy, that sort of stuff. So I'm probably going to duck out of giving anyone. Possibly one I like uh, that's possibly a little bit left field by by a guy named Clay Christensen, called The Innovator's Dilemma, which does talk about growth stocks, how growth stocks can just get ahead of themselves and struggle to reinvent themselves another time. So that, that's maybe a little bit different. But read broadly, read about corporate history, companies that do well, companies that do poorly. Um, yeah, just read. Yeah, I think that's a good one. I listened to an interview with John Hampton recently where he says, you need to read five investing books. It doesn't, it doesn't matter which five, but you just have to read five. Interesting, yep. There's value in just just reading a lot. So so on that, the second question: um, What is your go-to source for investing information? I'll, I'll throw two things. I clearly, as a professional investor, I, I get access to a Bloomberg, which uh, has a tremendous range of market information, company information, news information. So that, that's a really easy source. The one thing I open up on my desktop every day and if a name comes up, I can, yeah, within a matter of seconds, really tap into, yeah, 10 years of financial history, five years of forecast from the market, quick snapshot of their balance sheet, their cash flow, uh, look at their competitors. So that's a tremendous source of information, but it's a little bit pricey for, I would guess, plenty of your listeners. The other one's clearly just the internet. I mean, companies do a great job nowadays of putting a tremendous amount of information on their own websites, their, their presentations, their conference calls. Some are better, some are worse, but they do put a lot of information out there. So then final question, Peter, if you think back to your, when you started investing, would you have any advice for your younger self? I think it's, yeah, certainly follow the journey. It's been a a great 
career for me. It's been exciting. It's always interesting. Lots of different things going on. You get to learn about how the world works. I, I love talking to different company management and one day be talking to them and hearing about yeah how they dig how they dig for uh, drill for oil, uh, develop that business the next day, talk to bank management or whatever. So working out how the world works is the fascinating part of investing, thinking about the companies, uh, thinking about the industries. That's fascinating. So uh, it, it may be a bit self-serving, but I'd say, yeah, go, go on the journey, in, enjoy it, learn and so on. Well, Peter, it's been a fascinating conversation and uh, one that we've really enjoyed, you know, getting an insight into not only your, your personal background in investing philosophy, but also that of Templeton Global Growth. So if anyone is interested in, in investing, it can be done through the ASX. The ticker is TGG. So go and check it out. But uh, yeah, we just want to say a massive thanks for your time, Peter, and uh, really appreciate you coming on the show and, and sharing your, your insights and, and experience in, in value investing. So thank you. Thanks, Bryce. Thanks, Ren. Equity mates and the people appearing in this program may have positions in the companies mentioned. This is general advice only. Please speak to a financial professional to understand how it may pertain to your individual situation. Equity mates! I will say this about investing. Everything you do learn is cumulative. What I learned at 20 is you. This is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win, and support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.